Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we are talking with photojournalist Jeff Widener, who has covered major news stories in over 100 countries. Forty years ago, he took the famous image of a lone Chinese protester confronting a column of tanks in the 1989 Tiananmen Square uprising in Beijing, China. For that photo, he was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, and the photo has been selected by America Online as one of the top 10 most famous images of all time. Listen to Widener's story behind the story. Jeff, you're known primarily through the, the major public for the man who took the picture of the young man standing in front of the tanks in Tiananmen Square. Do you ever get sick of that? I mean, it was a great picture, but uh, it, it, your whole career has been defined by that one shot. How do you feel about that? Well, I have a bit of a love-hate re relationship with it. Okay. Because uh, um, as an artist, I would like to show my other work and what I've done and get some appreciation. And I would like to have exhibitions and, and do some book projects. But... Uh, a lot of times when the Tank Man photo comes up, uh, it's political in some ways. For example, I was going to have a big exhibition in Italy, but because the, um, the mayor in the town uh, was negotiating a, a leather good deal in Beijing, and the girl, I knew the girl because we'd been seeing each other, and she told me about this, and she thought it was going to be a problem. And uh, she said that the mayor's not going to want this, uh, this, this show right now with, with, because of the negotiation. So um, that big, giant exhibition fell through. And, I'm, I mean, the, it could have been many reasons why it fell through, but uh, the money was already appropriated, apparently, by the government to do the exhibition. But after that, it didn't happen. You've taken pictures, uh, your bio says, in 100 different countries. Your, your pictures from the South Pole – uh, uh, amazing. Uh, I would think you'd want to push those out a little further. Well, you know, my my website says uh, all over the map, and basically that's sort of the way I am. Is my work is all over the map because I love all aspects of photography. I mean, I can do photojournalism, news photography, landscape pictures, architectural, graphic. Uh, there's all aspects of photography that I love, and a lot of curators don't know how to peg me. They don't really know how to put it together. Um, 
in fact, the Italian curator flew out to see me in Hamburg, Germany, and he said, I love a challenge, and I think, you know, <laughs> we, so um, the, the thing is, is you, a lot of times you need a theme or a project, and I think if I'm really going to get an exhibition, it's going to have to be a certain theme or a project, and uh, then we'll be okay. Then they should be people. See, I'm, I'm looking for a retrospective of my career, and that's what's hard to put together. Because you're right, your your photos have been all over, all over the yeah, place. Yeah, it's just like you know. Um, I mean, I love all aspects of photography. In fact, I've gone back to shooting old Leica uh, rangefinder cameras with Tri-X film, and I make silver fiber prints. You know, like the old photographs. Right. And, right. and then I sign a number of them and sell them in the art markets, and I've done pretty well with that. I was reading your story about how you got to China, uh, which was an amazing story where you had to go to get the picture. Uh, but one of the things that struck me was uh, you talking about the the loads of camera equipment and you had to take even developing uh, equipment oh, yeah, with, yeah. with you. And that was one of your biggest fears of how to get that into the country. Well, they didn't want to let me into Beijing. I went to the Chinese embassy in Bangkok, because I was based in Bangkok for Associated Press. I was a Southeast Asia picture editor. And I went to the embassy, and I asked for a journalist visa, and the vice consul came out, and he said, Mr. Widener, it would not be convenient for you to go to Beijing right now. <laughs> that's, so, pretty, that's pretty blunt. Yeah, and so um, what I did was I knew that I had previous stamps in my passport from China. So I went to Hong Kong, and uh, I went to the U.S. embassy and said that I'd lost my passport. And they said, well, there seems to be a lot of lost passports lately. So they <laughs> gave me from journalists. Well, they weren't real happy about it. And so I got the uh, passport, and I went to a small little travel agency that I think was run by the Malaysian family. And they managed to get me a tourist visa. And so then I had to get into the country. But, see, I'm a tourist. And tourists normally don't carry around huge metal case with picture transmitters, tons of chemicals, photographic equipment, long lenses. And uh, so I was worried that the minute I got up to the uh, customs official, I would be immediately arrested and my kidneys would be pummeled. And 20 years later, I'd be bleeding and probably die. And so um, fortunately, when I got up to right up and my heart's pounding out of my chest, some really loud racket came down farther left down all the aisles at the end of the corridor, and there was a woman with a live chicken arguing and screaming <laughs> with officials. Feathers are flying everywhere, and I just pushed the cart through the double doors. They slid open automatic doors, and I slid and went right through and went to a taxi. I mean, it's a miracle. My life's like Forrest Gump. The stuff that has happened uh, and, and that I have, the bullets I've dodged literally and in many other ways is um, – has been extraordinary. It, it it didn't end there, though. You had a lot of scrapes while you were there and near misses, right? Yeah. Um, the routine every day was uh, you go to 6 o'clock in the morning to the Tiananmen Square, you photograph, you come back, you follow the pictures. But our photo editor decided to go back to Tokyo because he'd been there quite a while photographing Gorbachev, meeting with Chinese leaders, and he said, I'm going back. You're just going to let them fry in the sun in the square, so I'm just going to take off. Well, the next day... We had to uh, pull night shifts because we were low. Our staff was getting low. We only had three guys, three photographers. And uh, so we drew straws, and then I was the lucky <laughs> person to have to ride a bicycle that night. And uh, 
So when I got down to, uh, I was writing with another reporter, Dan Beer, and I said, Dan, I have a bad feeling about tonight. He says, what do you mean? He says, I don't know. I just don't, I don't, I feel something not right. And we got down to the Tiananmen Square, and there was all these uh, people running around setting up steel barricades and to block any possible advancing vehicles, military vehicles. And I'll never forget it. Um, some old guy wearing a heavy coat, and he had a long beard like Fu Manchu. You know, he had two teeth in his teeth. He's kind of, ah, and he's coming up to me all excited and the smile, and he opens up his jacket, and there's a big hatchet with blood dripping down. Oh, my God. And I looked at him, and, oh, I kind of, oh, great. Uh, and I turned around and got out of there, and I said, okay, something's going down here. And then I told Dan, and so we got off the main Shangon Boulevard to the side of the Great Hall of the People, and we can't see the main boulevard anymore, but we all of a sudden hear a loud racket of metal and steel crashing, and we know something's coming. And then people come running around the corner screaming and yelling. We still can't see what's happening. And then all of a sudden, uh, an armored car, you know, with a machine gun, comes ripping around, and sparks are flying off the treads. I dived off and jumped into some ivy, lost the 35-millimeter lens. Oh, Dan, he ran off somewhere. I never saw him again the rest of the night. So I'm running out of battery power because I was traveling light. I didn't want to really look like a journalist, and, right. which is pretty ridiculous when you think about it. But um, I, um, I started – I was scared to death, literally, just well, yeah. scared to death. And I started chasing. I said, I can't believe I'm chasing this armored car with these people f- chasing it. It was like something in my body pulling me, you know, like a force, an invisible force pulling me. But I, ha- I just I, I, I want to go back and sleep. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. But I've got to follow this thing. And I f- followed it. And I managed to get a picture of the protesters uh, standing on top of it. It got right. uh, stuck at the gates uh, of the Great Hall of the People and couldn't enter. And so the, the soldiers are inside and they're all, you know, probably freaking out and scared. So I got a picture and I'm about ready to hand back. And I saw white flashes way in the distance. Uh, and, and I don't know what they what they were. And I started heading back towards the AP office, which was in the diplomatic compound. And all of a sudden, I see something on fire coming towards me, and it was another burning armor. It was a burning armored car. Wow. And it was near the Tiananmen Square, but it was more near the Great Hall of the People. So I looked for my 35-millimeter lens, and that's when I realized I'd lost it. But I wanted to get a picture of that burning armored car, and it was kind of lurching barely moving towards me, and I knew they had front machine guns. And so, you were out of light almost too, right? I was out, almost out of battery power. Yeah. So in a way, I walked in front of a tank, but it wasn't <laughs> a tank. It was an armored car. And um, I thought really that if I take this flash picture, they could just shoot me dead right there because they might think it's gunfire because a lot of these protesters had uh, taken buses and, and were taking some of the uh, assault weapons out of the cases and I didn't know what they thought. So I took one picture, and then I got out of the way, and I'm waiting for the flash to recycle. And then all of a sudden, uh, people start grabbing me and pulling on my cameras, and, and I'm screaming, and they're pulling and screaming, and I thought they were going to rip me to shreds. So I reached in my pocket and pulled out my American passport, and I held it over my head, and I screamed, American, American. Well, I thought it would get me either saved or killed, killed. one or the other. I wasn't sure which, so... <laughs> The leader of the pack came over and told everybody to hush up, and he looked at my passport, and then he said, he pointed to the dead soldier on the ground, and he said, you photo, you photo. And so 
I went down, took a picture, started to get up. And he said, no, no, you photo, you photo. And I can't tell him that I can only shoot one picture a minute. So I came through literally walking through people's knees to, to get out from under the pack of people. And I got out, and all of a sudden, this, this, there's a man rolling around on the ground, and he's on fire, and somebody's trying to help put out the fire. And I lift the camera. After a while, I see the light go on in the flash, and I lift it to my eye, and all of a sudden, boom, my head snaps back. And you know the cartoons, you know, you, you see all the little stars around. I right. swear to God, it's just like that. It's just like little stars buzzing around. The back door opens up at the burning armor car. A soldier jumps out to surrender with his hands over his, you know, head. And I looked at it and I thought to myself, well, I'm going to lose the Pulitzer Prize for this picture. And I should feel guilty because this guy's probably going to get killed. And it hit me at the same time. And then I thought to myself, um, I got to get I got to get a flash. Well, I've got no top of a camera. There's no flash. There's no lens that's been ripped off. I've got a massive uh, head injury. And I started asking people, these, these are Chinese protesters. I'm asking in English, does anybody have a flash? That's how out of it I was. <laughs> so when I sort of got my senses, uh, I picked up a bicycle and started pedaling back towards the office. And there were bicycles just abandoned everywhere. They right? were just thrown everywhere. And uh, I came by the Great Ho- I mean, I came by Tiananmen Square, and there were red tracers flying over. And I was thinking there were fireworks, and I couldn't understand why they were shooting fireworks off. And then, Something hit me in my face. It was like a little teeny speck of asphalt. And I realized it was large caliber machine gun fire. And that's got me into high gear. It cleared my head a little fast, you know, then. and Pedal a little faster. I, right? well, I, well, if I could pedal, because a lot of these uh, barricades kept me from uh, riding. I had to lift the bike completely over and get to the side and then try to pedal more. And buses were on fire, so I was worried about an exploding gas tank. Uh, rocks are flying everywhere, and I'd already been whacked really good. And, and so... It was tough, and I really didn't know how badly injured I was. I didn't know if my brain was showing through my skull or, you know, what happened. Fortunately, it just pounded my nose pretty good, and I had a, a, you know, bloody nose. But walked into the office, and uh, Mark Avery was there, who was our chief photographer, and he said, don't go back out there killing people. And that was a no-brainer, so I sat down. And and I I went through a a difficult situation because this is the biggest story probably of the, the 20th century, and... I had a massive, a really bad case of the flu. I was coughing and hacking, and uh, it, was, it was wiping me out. I was tired, and now I was really injured, and I was really scared. And um, I just chickened out. I said, I can't, I can't go any further. I, I just I can't do it, even though I wanted to. So Mark sent me back to the hotel, to the Jangua, and I got back, and there had been a, I think by that time, there had been a plate glass in the restaurant blown out by gunfire. And I came to the room, and I turned on CNN. It was surprisingly still on. And I'm ordering, I ordered a cheeseburger and some fries. I'm sitting down there eating, watching this flames coming down the street. And I'm thinking, there's something not right here. I'm, I'm having room service while the story of the century is happening down the street. And it doesn't make, but I got to tell you, I just, I didn't have it in me to go back. And I felt really bad. I felt like a coward. And I really respected and admired the courage of those uh, protesters. So... I kept doing this, uh, you know, cat and mouse thing with them where I'd be, I'd hear them coming down the street, gunfire would go off, and I'd go running to the bathroom, hiding behind the wall to try to make sure I was protected from any gunfire. And then I'd try to get some sleep, and then I'd run back again. This went on all night. Smelled diesel fuel, you know. And in the morning, um, 
I finally decided I had to get back to the AP office, and uh, I think I woke up kind of late in the afternoon. And Lu Hunxing, the other photographer, I think he'd been working all morning, but I slept in kind of late. So by the time I get to the office, uh, there's a telex waiting from New York, AP New York, and it says we don't want anyone to take any unnecessary risk, but if somebody could photograph the Tiananmen Square, we'd appreciate it. <laughs> So, again, uh, we drew, drew straws, and I was the lucky one. And, no, actually, there were no straws. Lou said he couldn't do it because he was a Chinese-American, and he said they'd kill him, and uh, Mark said he, he had to stay to edit film. So that was me. I was the last guy, so I got to go. And uh, I had a Levi jacket, and I had a 400-millimeter Nikon lens in uh, one pocket, a doubler, a lens doubler, which would make the 400 and 800. I stuck that in uh, another inside jacket. Film was in my crotch. I had a, a 35 to 70 zoom that I got on top. I think I attached it to the 400, so it was actually one unit. But when you look at me, I just look like a scared tourist, you know. So yeah, it, right. wasn't, it wasn't really. So I started pedaling towards the Beijing Hotel, which had the closest vantage point. And uh, the rumors had it that the other journalists that had been going there were getting electrocuted by the uh, secret police. They wanted their cameras and notepads and things like that. So I'm going to a hotel where I think I'm going to be uh, electrocuted, and I have no idea how I'm going to get to a high vantage point to get the Occupied Tiananmen Square. So I rode down that street, and I could hear sporadic gunfire in the back alleys, and I was just, you know, I was so uh, scared, freaked out, that I started almost hallucinating. I started thinking back when I was a kid in Northridge, California, and I got my first Nikon F2, and I started thinking about that, you know, and it was kind of fading away, you know. It was almost like that body took over to try to control the fear. I had to pay my dues. I mean, I took the job, I knew the risk, and I had to do it. And uh, I had to step to the plate. And it's a strange experience having to do something you really don't want to do. I mean, when you're scared to death, you have to do it anyway. And I finally got to a massive intersection, really big, and there were four tanks facing each intersection with a soldier standing up out of the turret with a large caliber machine gun. So I went to the Beijing hotel, and I saw the guys in the white suits, secret police guys. I knew they were going to come over and check me out, and I I just had to do it anyway. And I was expecting to get arrested, and then I saw a, a Western kid, and it turned out to be an exchange student, and he was standing in the shadows. So I walked up, I walked past these security guys, and I went up to this this college student, and I said, "Joe, where you been? I've been looking for you." And I said, I'm from from AP. Can you let me up to your room? And he said, yeah, yeah, come on, come on, come on. So the security guys thought I was rooming with them, that I was a guest of the hotel, and they turned around and left me alone. (laughs) Quick thinking. And then this exchange student who now lives in China, he's got a business. He's really avoided me (laughs) talking to him lately because he wants to keep it low-key. But he told me, it's a good thing you came now because literally 10 minutes ago, a truckload of soldiers came by and shot a bunch of tourists in the lobby, and they grabbed their bodies back into the into the uh, um, into the hotel, and I, he said he hid behind a taxi. 
He told me this on, on the way up in the elevator, which was dark and slow. And I got into his room, and I immediately just collapsed on the bed and took a nap because I was exhausted. So then I would hear noises, like uh, I would hear vehicles come by, like sometimes a tank would come and push a bus out of the way, a burned-out bus, or sometimes you'd hear like a little tinkle of bell, and it was um, it was uh, like a, a cyclo with a flat bed on the back, and there'd be right. a, a white sheet with blood stains on it. Somebody was either dying or dead. And finally, I ran out of film, and I told this guy, I said, look, uh, I'm out of films. Can you see if you can get me some? Because I can't leave here. If I leave here, you know, and uh, they might uh, arrest me, and, uh, you know, you're just a student, you know, but I look more serious, like maybe I'm somebody that could be a journalist. So he went out for, I don't know, it must have been three, four hours, and he came back with one roll of film. <laughs> it was a roll of Fuji 100 ASA, and I was sh- normally shooting 800 ASA. So finally, uh, when the tanks were rolling down the street, I heard the tanks. I went out to the balcony. I'm leaning over the balcony thinking, well, this is, this is going to be a nice compression shot. Then this guy with, you know, these shopping bags walks out in front, waving his arms. And I, and I, I told this uh, student, I said, this guy's going to screw up my photograph. So I've got my lens on him. I'm waiting and waiting for him to be shot. And he doesn't get shot. And I'm thinking, wow, this is really far away. I can't hardly see him. There's other photographers that have this picture, but what makes mine different is that I have lamps in the photograph. And it gives a perspective. And the other thing is the guys, the other guys, they got him when he's more defiant. And they were grainier photographs because they didn't have as long a lens as I had. And they didn't have as fine a film grain as I had. So basically, in a nutshell, I get this picture I'm taking, you know, one manually, one, two, three, and then I notice the shutter speed is a 30th of a second. And if you know anything about photography, an 800-millimeter lens with 30th of a second handheld leaning over a balcony is not really uh, a candidate for, uh, uh, you know, success. And so I came back inside. Some of the people came up and they swept them away, and I came inside, sat down against the wall in a chair, and this exchange student said, did you get it, did you get it? And I said... I don't know. I don't know if I got it or not. And he said, did you get it? Did you get it? But in the back of my mind, I thought I had maybe one photo. And it's just a thought. You know, you get a gut. Yeah. You, know, you don't know what it is. You just like, and I've always had sort of a sixth sense about things. So he agreed to stuff all my film into his underwear in a plastic bag. And he was going to take it to the AP office. And I remember standing at the balcony looking down, and there were about five or six of these guys in the white uniforms, and they're all smoking cigarettes laughing. And I just thought to myself that right now, one of the most embarrassing photographs for the Chinese government has just gone by them while there's smoke break, <laughs> and they are completely oblivious to it. And when In I, the underwear of an American student, right? Well, I was worried about that a roll uh, dropped out of his crotch, you know, on the ground. Right. That could have caused a real problem. Absolutely. And the, the funny thing was when he got on the bike and started pedaling, you could see it was quite painful because it was right up in his crotch as he's pedaling. And he's kind of going, oh, 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 you know. And <laughs> so for about five hours, I knew nothing about what happened to this uh, student. And finally, uh, I called the AP office and they said, I think it was just Lou Hunshing who said, Jeff, what shutter speed were you shooting? And I, oh, God, I didn't get the picture. <laughs> well, it was okay. We moved it, but it wasn't that sharp. Um, so at least I knew they got something. And then, and then this, this student comes back, and he, he said that I couldn't get it to the AP office. 
I had to take it to the U.S. Embassy. And I told them, this is a very important film for AP. Um, you've got to get it to them. Oh, and the, no. and the, I mean, the embassy could have done anything with it. Sure. And, but they got it. They got it to them, and they delivered it. And if it wasn't for the embassy, uh, nobody would have seen that picture. And it was all over the world almost well, then, immediately. Uh, right? The next day I came in uh, to the office in the morning and uh, Lou Hanshin came up to me, the same guy. He told me that and I didn't have a sharp picture. He goes, oh, Jeff, you have very bad messages from New York. I said, oh, God, what do I do now? You know, And it was, uh, it was incredible. There were messages from all over the world, from all the bureaus, and they were saying, congratulations to Jeff Widener. He's fronting all London papers, half page. Uh, newspaper Liberation wants an interview. Life Magazine wants your picture. Uh, it ended up being everywhere. It was in the cover of Time Magazine. Um, and, you know, it fulfills some of my goals because one of my fantasies as a kid was to get a double truck page spread in Life Magazine. It had been big, gone out of business, came back small, came back, went out of business, and it came back big. And I just timed it at the right time when it was a big size. And life ran to two pages, but it uh, it uh, got me. I uh, was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. I was a finalist in 1990 in Spot News, and it was really pretty amazing. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders. These leaders will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research on communication concepts, issues, and problems. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provides benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. You can learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. You talked about intuition uh, a couple of times. Uh, is that something that's saved you more than once? During your career, I I think so. Uh, I I really believe so. There's been uh, well, I'll give you an example. I was covering the Olympics in 1988 in uh, South Korea as Pusan, and I was I was going to have to fly around in a helicopter for a couple hours fo- uh, photographing yachting. It wasn't my favorite uh, sporting thing, but I mean, <laughs> you know, that was my job, and so I had to shoot yachting. And I came back and. Uh, we had to go to the airport, and I had to there, there. I had to take a chopper, helicopter. So we were running out to the, you know, there's other photographers, and we're all running out to get a seat on the, one or two helicopters. And there was a Huey, the, which was famous for the Vietnam War. Right. And there was a Bell Ranger. Well, I thought to myself that, you know, 
those Hueys are pretty tough during the war. They could take a lot of flack sometimes. But those Bell Rangers are pretty finicky uh, assemblies on the engine and uh, the rotors. So I just had – and I had a gut feeling. Something felt like I was safer in that Huey. So I got in and we took off. And we were flying around and I was nervous on the whole flight. I don't know why. I just felt something was wrong. I felt an uneasiness. Right. So we landed and I caught a flight from Pusan back to Korea, uh, South Korea. So, and I walked in the door, and I was in the pool position, which was a, it was kind of coveted in a way because I could go to the inner track, and I was able to do other things as well. And uh, I went to the, uh, it was the IOPP, I think, and the guy who ran it, Gary Kemper, first thing he says to me is, Jeff, did you get anything of the helicopter crash? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, there was a helicopter with a bunch of Korean journalists that crashed, they crash landed in the ocean. And they're 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 okay, but they're suffering from shock. So uh, I go, oh man, that was the chopper that I didn't that take. That was the one you didn't take. I didn't take it. So as far as intuition, um, yeah, I've had it a lot of times, and um, things that don't feel right. Uh, it's come in handy in gambling sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask you. Uh, you started photography as a kid, and and you've had this passion all all of your life. Um, can you teach that, or is that born in somebody? Well, I think it comes down to a person's willingness to listen and absorb. And I think they have to have something inside of them that drives them with a passion to listen, to search for knowledge that is going to advance their goal of getting whatever it is they want. So what I'm saying is is that there today I did a talk and there were a few people that came up for selfies. There were a few guys that I mean four guys maybe that came up to me and they were very interested to hear what I had to say and they wanted advice about photography. And I told them basically that you're already a step ahead of everybody else because you have enough passion to at least get outside of that hall and come down to, and talk to me. Right. That may seem ridiculously simple, but it really does send signals out right away about what their interest and passion is. And I would say my passion was extraordinary. Uh, I, I really believe that whatever is inside that has driven me all my life is, um, is just extraordinary. I mean, I was uh, must have been five years old or four years old. I remember walking out of the house and said, uh, "This, you know, this sucks. I don't want to be wrapped up inside of this house. I mean, I'm going to go take a walk and explore the world." So I went down to the end of the street, and I still remember today there was a there was a gardener cutting cutting these um, hedges, and he was looking at me like there's this little kid, and, and he was not sure what to do. You know, he was looking at me like, well, what do I do? Do I let him go? or Should I take him home? Or yeah, what? but I still remember that. And, uh, and, I, and I walked to the end, and there was a, there was a um, canal, you know, the canal with a 90-degree sure. angle, you know, where kids drown all the time. But it was dry, and I went down in this thing, and I was like, oh, cool, man. Look at this. This is a, like, something I can climb on. And I'm walking down the street, and then uh, I start hearing a lady call me. And young man, little boy, little boy, would you like some candy? And <laughs> so she's, she, I, I, well, this is great. I get candy today. So I went up. She took me to a, a liquor store. And I remember she got me a little toy helicopter with little sugar candies inside of it. 
And then the next thing you know, a police officer shows up. And then he started asking me uh, questions about where my parents were and where I was. And <laughs> I, I remember seeing my, my parents were freaked out. And so they'd taken our dog out to see if our dog could find my scent or whatever. And they did. He did. And my dog found me. And I told the policeman, I said, oh, that's my dog. And I can tell you that my mom was not happy. No. At all. <laughs> but I not. mean, clear back then, I was looking for adventure. But not just looking for adventure, but having curiosity. And, oh, and yeah. what I deal with with students today is you can teach them the mechanics of writing or, or writing a news story or doing a package on TV or probably even taking a picture. You can teach them the mechanics, but you can't teach them that passion, that drive, that curiosity. They either have it or they don't. You're right. And I remember my parents had a 19, I think it was a 1942 World Book Encyclopedia set. And there was something about books that really attracted me. There's the smell of it, the mustiness. And I opened it up and there were all these colorful pictures of gems, rubies and emeralds. And then there was cool shots of um, pictures of diagrams of how bombers drop bombs and how they go through the houses and, and uh, anything with airplanes and and gems and co- all that stuff was rattling in my mind. I mean, it was sticking in there, and it gave me a view of the whole world. And I remember thinking to myself, I want to see all of it. And you have almost. And it was literally only a short time after that that my dad brought a well-known photographer, Lee Weiner, who was a Life magazine photographer. He shot a very famous picture that was in their top 50 or whatever years of Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney and their on stage together, and she's smoking a cigarette. Well, he came in, and he opened his metal trunk, his case, and my eyes opened up because there was camera bodies, motor drives. uh, I mean, I remember it, light meters, but they had needles back then. They didn't have digital readouts and yellow packs of Tri-X probably film, and I remember all that stuff, and I thought, that is the coolest stuff. I want to be a photographer. I want to be just like him. And uh, I didn't mention in my talk because uh, I was, uh, you know, every time I go through this, there's so much. What do you edit down to? And I've been kind of distracted on this trip, shooting other things in New York and here. And you forget to mention things. But one of the things I remember about that was that, you know, he, all these things stuck in my mind. So by the time I reached, um, I guess, around 10 years old, I kept bugging my parents to get me a camera. And finally for Christmas, I think it was, I don't know when it was, maybe it was in, maybe it was around the summertime, they bought me a Kodak Fun Flash camera. And I went outside with it, I figured out how to load the film, and I went somewhere and I came back, and my grandfather was with us, and I took my first photograph of my grandfather walking across our yard in Canoga Park, California. It was the first picture, not the first roll, first picture, and I ha- still have that picture. It was in my presentation. Oh, and it has 1967 on it, July 1967. Wow. I don't know how. It's a miracle I've kept that photo all these years. <laughs> it's nice. But, but I still your, have it. It's nice to have your first. It's got the little ridges around right. the edge. You oh, know? of course. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, and from that point on, um, a few years later, when I, I, ch- I changed schools in my senior year to Reseda High School, where I won my Kodak Scholastic Scholarship. Around that time, uh, I asked my dad about Lee Weiner, and Lee Weiner agreed to let me work in his darkroom, and he taught me oh how to my print. God. So this guy, he t- and I remember coming out, and he'd say, no, 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 no. I said, but it's a perfect print. 
No, 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 not the way I print. I want you, you see the lighting around his face? I want you to go and print it really dark so all you can see is that light around his face. So I went in the dark room and I'm printing really dark and then all of a sudden you look at it and you go, wow, that's dramatic. That's dramatic. And he shot a lot of famous pictures of John Kennedy that way on the airplane where he just had a single light and it was just lighting the side of his face and the rest was in darkness. He was really into that kind of lighting. But I learned a lot from Lee and, uh, you know, I've always tried to take advantage of opportunities and, of course, uh, moving to schools to, to Reseda, uh, I, because of that move, I, I, I won that Kodak Scholastic National uh, Photography Scholarship, beat out 8,000 students, went to Africa for a month, and that's, that trip is that when started. I decided to be a photojournalist. That started. Jeff, we're out of time. Thank you so much for talking. Yeah, my pleasure. Today, we've been talking with photojournalist Jeff Widener. He tells us the story behind the famous picture of the lone protester confronting a column of Chinese tanks in Tiananmen Square in Beijing in 1989. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your podcast outlets. 